What's happening friends, it's Travis McKenzie here again and we're back for day 11 of the I'm Curious to Know project, a series of daily live streams throughout May. If you want to catch these conversations live and interact with my guests, come and check out the Inner Voice Facebook page at 3.30pm Eastern every single day for the rest of the month. If you're here and not there, that's okay too. Today's guest is the CEO of 3T Bytes, Renee Wirtz. His story is fascinating. He went from a stable career with Philips, a giant global brand, to relaunching a brand of bicycle parts in an industry he really knew nothing about. With the idea of establishing a premium offering and driving to be first to market at all times, he spent the last 13 years exploring his entrepreneurial spirit and has spearheaded many category creating products. As you've heard from the entrepreneurs and CEOs that I've interviewed this month, their journey in business is never smooth. And Renee gives us an insight into the mindset of how he celebrates the wins to help ride the wave through the losses. This is also a fascinating look at how 3T reallocated resources to support their local community in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which decimated their hometown of Bergamo, Italy. If you love bikes or business or both, this is a conversation you're going to want to hear. Thanks again for being here. Please enjoy the show. Here we are. We're live again, day 11 of the I'm Curious to Know project. Uh, special day yesterday with my wife joining the show uh, for Mother's Day. And today we have a friend and uh, someone I've not been in touch with for a little while, but I'm glad to be able to get back together. Renee Wirtz, the CEO of 3T Bikes. Renee, how are you doing? Fine, thanks. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. I know that you have had some pretty serious experience over the last little while with, with COVID and the impact on um, your hometown where 3T is based. And we'll get into that. But I, I want to start with a question I've always wondered. Uh, you had a steady, stable career with Philips. You were climbing the corporate ladder. You had a steady job. And then all of a sudden, you know, early 30s, you decide that you wanted to go to this brand, this bike brand, uh, and and take over and reinvent. I want to I want to hear from you. What, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah, indeed, I had a twelve year career at Philips. So yeah, when I graduated from a business administration, I did what most people of my age did: is joining a big uh, company because the philosophy was big companies offer a lot of growth opportunities. So I started in treasury, uh, dealing with money, and then uh, went into consumer electronic division of Philips. I went to uh, I moved to France, Paris. Nice to join the, the mobile phone division. And in the mobile phone division was uh, a division where I uh, managed a spin-off for Philips. I got to deal with entrepreneurs uh, that were building a company uh, and I became uh, the active CEO of the company. And I really enjoyed that phase because it was people very driven to build their own business and, and, and you know, they had a project, they didn't have a job. And uh, after that, I moved on to Philips in the semiconductors, and my last job was in uh, corporate merge and acquisitions. Uh, during that time, I did an MBA at INSEAD, and uh, a lot of time at this MBA spent on thinking about what you really want with your life. Uh, and although most of my classmates were sponsored, had a sponsored MBA from the company, most people left the job afterwards because uh, I realized for myself that what I enjoy is building something. I like to create and build. I tried to launch an online dating company in 2004, which was pretty early on at that stage. <laughs> that didn't succeed because I realized I didn't spend enough, the right money to get good people on board. So that was also the time when I realized I'm probably 
better off trying to acquire a small company and and grow it because I had a lot of international business experience in my uh, in my 12 years in Philips. Honestly, I looked at acquiring a small boat company in France. I looked at a sailing company, a sail company. Uh, I looked at various options, and then I came across 3T. Uh, and what I saw there was, first of all, an industry where people are super passionate about their sport. So people that work in the cycling industry don't have a job. They are passionate about their sport, and they love to talk about bikes all the time. Yeah. And I really enjoyed seeing that, seeing like this is... This is something I really would like to be involved in. Born in the Netherlands, I r- was raised with a bike, obviously. I've won in Holland yep. at least one bike, so that came natural fit as well. And also the fact that 3T was a premium brand. And it was, uh, I saw potential in, in positioning that, bringing that back, relaunching that as a premium international brand. So I took the opportunity. I acquired the, the trademark, the brand name, and started a company from scratch. And uh, I honestly, the first day I was sitting in my kitchen table after leaving Philips for 12 years, having a company car and a secretary and a pension fund, a pension fund, etc. Uh, and all these resources, the first day I was sitting at home and thinking, what have I started? <laughs> Where do I start? Yeah. Uh, but uh, so the first thing I did was taking a plane to Asia to try to find some products for my new company with only a logo. And since then, I've been, you know, first rebuilding the company as a parts company, and later on, we transitioned to bicycles. And I really enjoyed every moment of it. It hasn't been easy. I mean, it's not easy to be the the driver or something like this, but I really enjoy it because there's no one to blame uh, for if nothing works. It's me and my team building the company, and um, yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot to build and also to be involved with people that are so passionate about our sport. It's a lifestyle to be involved in, in, in this business, I think. Now you, early on in the company, from what I could gather, really focused on um, you know, creating a premium product um, and also getting it in the hands of the right people. So getting it on protein bikes, um, really focusing on those sponsorship arrangements and having it in the right teams. Can you tell me about kind of your tactics or your thoughts about how you went about bringing the business to life and, and getting your product in the, the hands of the right people? Yeah, first of all, I think it's a choice when you build a business, you either be cheaper or you're better than competition, but there's not, not, not much other options. Uh, and you have people's, per- some people have a personality to be able to squeeze every cent out of a product. I'm more of a storyteller creating this uh, premium image and the service around that. So for me, that was a natural choice. It was also where 3T was in the past. 3T's founder was a very innovative uh, person. So uh, 3T is actually the most innovative bicycle company from its foundation. So it, I was continuing the DNA of the brand. Uh, Andy Ording founded Zip or took over Zip and grew that uh, successfully. And for me, that was a big example of how he did that. And I took inspiration of that in uh, in growing 3T. I've always looked for, for me, for reference points of people that I think do a great job or I admire or think, uh, you know, have, have a certain areas, a certain expertise. And I tried to learn from that. And that was a, that was one of the examples for me. So yeah, pro tour team and uh, and getting connected with the right brands. I never wanted to be an OEM brand. I wanted to build Tricky as an independent brand. Uh, so we chose only a few OEMs with the right brand name to carry the Tricky brand into the stores and then be growing aftermarket. Yeah, it's probably that's probably where a lot of people have seen you know the logo on your shirt there and recognize the name of the brand is you know, handlebars, stems, seat posts, all the things that kind of have come on their bike. So they probably recognize it, but they may not know or they may not be aware that you over the last 
five years or so have now started developing and building and growing your own bikes. What was that lightning in the bottle moment where you're like, okay, it's time to build bikes. We can do this better. We can do this more premium. We can create a category. Well, when, uh, when we relaunched 3T in 2007, we became very quickly very successful. Also helped with the fact that uh, Carlos Sastel won the Tour de France in 2008. I mean, sometimes you have to be lucky, but it was only one time lucky to win the Tour de France, but that was the, the, in the beginning, which had to be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, so we went through, I think, five, six years of tremendous growth. Everything we produced was basically gold. It was flying out of the door. And at a certain point, I think in 2012, 13, it was getting harder. And rather than pushing harder, of course, I started first pushing harder. And then I took a step back and realized what is changing. And I realized that what was changing was that bikes were getting more integrated. We were selling in 2008 a lot of forks to frame builders, but all the frame builders started making their own fork. Then came the integration of the seat post. It came from a standard round on an arrow seat post that only fits that particular brand name. So you could think about, okay, if it's fork and seat post, then the next thing will be the cockpit, the handlebar and the stem. That's where our core business came from. Our market was going to reduce in size. From a defensive point of view, we needed to go in another direction. But I also thought from an offensive point of view, thinking, hey, we make actually everything of a bike except the frame. So we have the rest all. So that's a lot, right? A lot of frame builders are trying to make the other parts, and that's not so simple. My first customer in 3 was Cervelo founded by uh, Phil White and uh, Gerard Roma. Yeah. Uh, and they have really helped, Cervelo uh, has really helped to uh, allow Treaty to take off with, uh, with that relationship and the sponsorship and the Carlos Sastre win, of course. Uh, they sold the company in, I think, 2012. So in 2013, when I realized we wanted to, uh, we needed to go into frame and bike development, uh, I reached out to Gerard that I knew from 2007 and uh, he had nothing to do. Uh, and he was willing to, uh, you know, to uh, to get back on designing great frames, and he's best frame designer in the industry. I think. And we yep. started talking about him joining uh, the company and then helping transition the company to a bike company. And the second thing that we agreed is when he came on board is we want to bring production back in house. The first pillar of chasing the bike company that has already been achieved. We are now ninety percent of our revenue is coming from bicycles, gravel, and road. Uh, and the second pillar of uh, production, uh, we produce our own crank uh, since one half year in-house and we will start producing our own frames in-house. First only selective models, but I think in a five-year time frame, we really plan to bring, uh, you know, 50% or more of our production in-house. How long from that initial discussion with Gerard to the first bike kind of prototype rolling off the off the factory line what was that process like of creating that first product so as uh, joined beginning of 2015 and of course when he joined we already had clear what we wanted to do it was not that he joined first and then we were starting to discuss what the plan was we agreed yeah. to plan before he joined uh, he joined and then it took uh, 14 months to launch the first bike which was the aero gravel bike very exciting moment i was also very nervous of our first bike Yep. Uh, the first reactions for the press were also very nervous cracking because they said it's a beautiful bike, but it's a niche of a niche because who needs an aero gravel bike? <laughs> but that had turned out to be a, a very great success story. We are very happy with that change that we made. And uh, uh, the next uh, the next frame took, took shorter to develop. It's not just a product change. I think that's important to say as well. 
if I change from parts to buyer's company, I have to change everything in the company. Uh, so instead of one big shipment, you make us a lot of small ones. It's about customer service, which is more technical than uh, than uh, uh, paperwork. It's yeah. about uh, your marketing is different. Uh, for parts, you, you just need to make studio shots. With bikes, you really need to be way more active on the on that side. So we have changed the entire company. Yeah, it's those things you don't think of, right? You think that a company has it's underway. It's doing, you know, you're doing really well. You've you've noticed an opportunity. Start making bikes. It's not that simple. And you mentioned to me, you talked about storytelling. You talked about this content creation, this marketing. I think right from the beginning, you did a really good job of that, of that storytelling and romancing the product and showcasing it the way that it's supposed to be used. You know, in particular with your Expedition Three trips. And I had the privilege of, of, of doing one of those and, and kind of writing about that for you guys in Ireland in 2018. And it was a, a real joy. Tell me about why that was such an important part of the beginning of the company and show or beginning of you selling and creating and making your own bikes. Well, when we launched Explorer, there were, there were two issues. One was that uh, how do you market something in a new market? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Aero gravel didn't exist. So how do you market there? If you make a road bike, it's very obvious. You sponsor a pro tour team, you get exposure, you get credibility, and you sell your bikes. And the second thing is that I realized that we are not selling bikes, but we are selling the experience and the fun of cycling. And I saw our competition all focused on bicycles and the bottom bracket stiffness and God knows whatever. But it became for me all very similar stories from every brand. So we wanted to connect people back to what the point of cycling was, which was to enjoy and have fun and surrounding nature, right? Early adopters of gravel, there were people that went six, seven, eight, nine weeks or sometimes months to South America to make fantastic trips. And I would love to do that, but I just don't have the time to do that. So we yeah. thought, can we package that experience in a time frame which allows our customers that have all busy jobs to have that same experience? Yeah. And that's where Expedition 3 came up. It's a three-day adventure trip in, a, in, in, in an area which is within two hours flying from where you live. So our goal was to, to have storytelling about how great gravel riding is near areas where our customers are living. And that was important because when gravel started, people were saying, oh, that's an American thing that doesn't exist everywhere else. So yeah. we wanted to show that it is in the, in the UK, in Spain, in the US, in Canada, in Mexico, everywhere you can find beautiful all, all road trips, road and off-road. So we start telling those stories. That's my type of cycling. Yeah. I enjoy it. It is strong riding. You need, to, you need to be fit to do that. You see a lot of different areas. You eat well. You enjoy the whole day. It's not a niche anymore. It's probably one of the biggest sectors. Yeah, it definitely is here in the US. So I wonder kind of what the trends you're seeing around the world. And now that it is somewhat of a crowded marketplace, what are the next steps for you guys to continue to stand out with your product offering? Our 3T has always been, uh, well, first of all, in, in terms of the world, it started in the US, Canada, yep. but it's now in Europe, it's, uh, it's fully on board. It's, it's everywhere, probably two years behind still the US and Canada, but it's, it's, it's already big in Europe. In Asia, it is starting slowly. Uh, and cycling Asia is the last part of the three, uh, let's say, areas in the world. There is uh, Japan, it's starting, Korea, it's starting, very small and slow. And in terms of how do we stay ahead, well, uh, we uh, one of our slogans is be first. So we, uh, as I said, the founder of 3T was a very innovative person. 
Utrecht, he was the first to use aerospace alloy for, for handlebars and stems. Uh, so that DNA is still in 3 and Gerard Vrome uh, is obviously a very uh, innovative guy. He's pushing the envelope. That's also my nature. So we uh, we constantly find uh, new ideas to be creative, not only in the product side, but also on the business, business side or the marketing side. We continue yeah. to develop great bikes. And today, the Explorer is still the fastest gravel bike in the market. Now, tell me, you mentioned Jeroboam. I, I love the story of how that created. I love the name behind the series. I love how you guys are expanding that to get more people on bike, get more people to adventure and experience the product, but also have an amazing time with amazing people in beautiful locations. With an asterisk, obviously 2020 is a tough year to do these type of things, but tell me the story about Jeroboam and the name behind that and how that all came to be. Well, we had to, we launched uh, the Explorer, the gravel bike, and we started expedition trips, so that was all going well. Yeah. But what we missed was a kind of an event. In, in, uh, in Italy's uh, Grand Fondos are very famous, so road cyclists come together, they race, and then uh, they go home afterwards. So uh, there was the idea from another organization to create a gravel event, and uh, we were asked to become the sponsor because uh, we were recognized as one of the leaders in this category. And uh, I was thinking, yeah, we can sponsor that event, and we will. We are a small company, and if this is a failure, this event, uh, then we wasted our money. If it's a success, then one of the bigger guys will come in, and they will take that position. They will offer more money. So, how can we create something more authentic to us? Not just giving, a, sending money, and being a sponsor, but how can we create something which is for our customers and for our employees as well? So we are in the north of Italy, very close to the uh, Francia Corte area, which is where the, the Prosecco, the sparkling white wine, is produced. And it's fantastic riding there. It's, it's, it's tough gravel riding there, but it's beautiful. There's lakes, there's mountains, there's uh, all kinds of levels of gravel roads. And uh, we decided, why don't we create our own event? One of the things was it needs to be very challenging. So we came up with the idea about let's make a 300 kilometer ride. And it happened to be that the three liter wine bottle name is called Jeroboam. So that's why it's called the Jeroboam series. Yep. After the three liter wine bottle, and we have also the Magnum Ride, which is 150 kilometer, the Standard, which is 75, and the Demi, that is the 37 and a half kilometer. So it's all in line with the size of the one, the wine bottles. We launched it in the 70 with the series in Italy. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, we have expanded, and this year was actually the great breakthrough. We had uh, Costa Rica, Greece, Dolomites in Italy, our in Francia Corta, Spain, Austria. Switzerland, Japan, all lined up and everything is postponed or canceled. But we will do it otherwise. We will start at the end of the year or next year. But we will create a series where you, you know what to expect in terms of distances. You know what to expect in terms of uh, inclusive. It's not only for guys. It's for families. It's for men and women. You can bring your kids. There's entertainment. There's food. It's a yeah. weekend. So you can really enjoy the sport with, with, with your family or with friends. I want to talk about some of the other product offerings you have as well. So the Explorer, as you mentioned, is the aero gravel bike. Um, you also have the Strava in the lineup. I have some really fond memories of the first time I, I rode a Strava, uh, a Strata, sorry. You had driven from your hometown across the border. You met me in, uh, in Schaffhausen in Switzerland, where I was taking on the uh, Tour Tour, which was a 500 kilometer relay ride around Switzerland, a, a tour of Switzerland. Um, you were generous enough to, to drop off some bikes for our team. I had a moment in time where I'm riding that bike, looking at the Swiss mountains. And I'm like, this is heaven. This bike is incredible. It's like a rocket ship. 
I felt on top of the world. So I have very, very fond memories of that first experience of riding the, the Strata and getting to meet you. And we had a great dinner and a great conversation. Tell me about that particular product and, and, and what that one's all about as well. Well, the Strata is, uh, is an aero road bike, so it's all about speed, right? That's the heritage for the team between uh, a performance brand, always at the you know, high-end side of the market. Uh, but uh, it's also about comfort. And I think what we showed with the Strata was that comfort and performance go hand in hand. Strata was the first bike that could run 30 millimeter tires. You start with the tire saying, I want to have comfort on my bike. So I start with a wider tire, uh, and then I design the frame around that tire. Uh, and that is how you can get an aerodynamic performance comfort bike. What other brands have tried at that time is uh, design a frame and then flipping in some some tires on the putting in some some tires on the wheels. And then if you put a 30 millimeter tire in a bike that's designed for 25 millimeter, it destroys your aerodynamics. So we start the other way around. We start from the tire. We want comfort. It means wider tires. Then design a frame around it. It is one of the fastest bike ever made, yet very comfortable. And that is what Everyone that drives that bike confirms. It's very fast, it's very stiff, yet very comfortable. You're not, uh, you don't need to go uh, laying in your bed for hours to recover from your trip. You can actually enjoy after the ride to walk to your table having a good dinner. You mentioned, you know, starting from tires and building around that. How do you price a bike? I mean, you have competition, obviously. Uh, even though, uh, you know, we think we have a unique bike, of course, there's competition. You have a customer decides what the competition is, not us. Uh, so that's, of course, an element to take into consideration. Uh, we also look, of course, at, uh, at the cost. How does it cost to make something? Our products are, we use the best material for our products, so we're never the cheapest. Uh, and it's also the service that we deliver, right? It's, uh, we want to service our customers in a certain way, so we need to make certain marks to pay for all of that. And, uh, and then I think for us, it's also important then with all that in consideration that we ask a fair price. We don't want to be a company that's squeezing every dollar out of our customer. We we are definitely not a cheap brand. We uh, we want to offer a fair price for the effort that we put in and the service that we are giving. It hasn't been without challenges. Let's be frank. Starting a bike brand, starting you know releasing bikes to the world. There's been some ups and downs. Um, namely, broken into last year into the factory. Ocean's Eleven was how you kind of described it to me at the time where people came in and basically ransacked and stole a bunch of bikes from the factory. That was kind of one of the things, you know, dealing with COVID and the, the impact on Bergamo and the hometown of 3T, you know, the sponsorship with the the, the road cycling team, the UCI team, uh, you know, and some of the backlash there. Tell me some about the, the roller coaster of things that have kind of gone wrong as well. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you, 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 you have to build something and, Nothing is easy. From the outside, it might look like successful, but there's a lot of energy that goes into this from myself and Mr. but also from the entire team, right? We are a very pushy team. Uh, you need to push forward and you need to believe in what you're doing. I think that's maybe even more important. And, and that's what you need because there's a lot of things go wrong. <laughs> it's a personal drive to, to want to achieve. And to build, I think that motivates me. I'm not looking for a short-term gain, so I'm, I really want to build something sustainable. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I have also support around me, my family, but also I'm part of an entrepreneur organization that when when you are those moments where you're down because you have a setback number six uh, that week, that you have people that say, hey, I've been there too. Don't worry, everything will be fine two nights of good sleep and, and then we go again. And it's also very important, I realized uh, over time, 
to look back at successes, right? So, so I started alone in my kitchen table. So when we were four people, it was just saying, ah, I started alone, now we have four. That's a success, right? Or we had only one handlebar, now we have three. Or we had yeah. one cup, now we have five. So it's very important to celebrate successes, even if they're small, particularly in moments where it's difficult. Saying, yeah, this did, didn't work, but that worked. Okay, let's focus on the things that didn't work and we also will succeed. You know, what was the moment in time where you're like, oh shit, I don't think this is going to work or this is too much of a challenge to overcome or you were just really despondent and it maybe it took you a couple, you know, more than two nights to get over. Was there one moment in particular that you can remember? Oh, there have been uh, several, if not many of those. If you run a company, your issues are with cash flow, your issues are with people. You have uh, deliveries to make to teams and products don't arrive on time or the plane is canceled or, or, your, or your product failed to test. Suppliers had to pay, but the customer didn't pay, so they have an problem over there. I've seen in 3T, we had, in the beginning, we hired a very good team and then we got bigger. We got uh, people on board that actually didn't fit the culture of the company uh, and to have to let them go again. That was, in the beginning, really difficult too. Many setbacks, many highs and many lows. Uh, from the highs, you need to get the energy to overcome the lows. Yeah, great advice again. Now, uh, I want to touch on on the recent uh, occurrences. You're in the heart of what was at a time the epicenter of COVID-19 in the whole entire world in Bergamo, Italy. You, I had kind of sent you a message sending my thoughts and wishes to you and you'd mentioned how difficult it was. You're hearing sirens throughout the night. Um, you know, there's people you know and love that are in hospital and, and dying and people from the team's family and it was a really traumatic time. And for you, you had to readjust, you had to pivot. Tell me about some of those initiatives that you took on, but also how was it being in that part of the world with so much horrible news happening on a constant basis? Yeah, it, it arrived at us in the beginning of March and then it went really quick. So I remember that the first weekend of March on Saturday, my wife went still skiing with the kids. Sunday, the lockdown started. So the schools were already closed for two weeks at that time, but everything was relaxed. People were still going for on the terrace. It was nice weather, having a drink outside. And on Sunday, the government uh, closed everything, the ski lifts, hotels, etc. Four or five days later, we started hearing ambulances 25 hours a day, every five minutes passing by my house. So it was really scary. Uh, we had people in the office that had the virus. Uh, I think a week after the lockdown, uh, two people in my office, they lost, uh, one lost their father-in-law, the other one lost uh, his grandmother. Uh, we had friends where uh, their parents were in the hospital. We have uh, uh, the, the person that is also making, always making the roots for the Jeroboam in, in France Corta is actually a doctor on intensive care. So we heard from him the stories about having to choose between this patient here or the other one. There was serious panic here that this was going to go completely wrong. Streets are empty and the only thing you hear outside is the ambulance passing by all the time. And day and night, that is really scary. I mean, some people compare it with the war situation. I think in war is even worse because you hear bombs and you hear that kind of stuff. We didn't hear, have that, of course. But for the rest, it was quite outside. Everyone's scared and ambulance all the time. It was really bad. So um, we, I, for me, it was, of course, there were two things. There was a human tragedy. I mean, that came really close. And there's also the, the business aspect, right? We, we have a company and we have jobs and we have families that are living from that. So I wanted to work on both 
both of these things. So we, we were told three days before that we had to close as a company. With one guy in the office, we packed as much good bikes as we could. We put them on a pallet in the truck to Denmark. So everyone moved home, working from home, and our products moved to Denmark. So we continue to support our customers from there. That was, uh, that was a good move in hindsight. Uh, I remember standing in the warehouse and the other guy said, René, do you really think this is worth it? I said, you know, we just try it. Otherwise, we just wasted three days, but maybe, it's, maybe it works. And luckily, it worked. Denmark remained open and we could support all Northern Europe. I think it's important as a company that you also vibrate positivism to, 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 to the community, but also to your customers. So we came up with this bundle together with Elite. Elite was very kind to, to provide... Uh, trainers at cost price and they could sell them for full price because everyone was wanted, looking for trainers. They gave us trainers. We combined them with the bike and sold that at cost price to customers. And from every bundle, we uh, donated 500 euro to the hospital in Bergamoort because they were really in need. We are young, dynamic teams, sporty people. There must be something we can do more than just raising money. We just started a year and a half before the factory uh, in our building where we produced cranks. So uh, I discussed with the, uh, the head of the engineering team, they're saying, what is it that we can use this equipment we have here? What can we use it for, for, for breathing equipment? Because at that moment, there was a shortage of uh, ventilators. Two engineers in Italy had invented, uh, had figured out that the Decathlon diving mask could be transformed into a ventilator. And over the weekend, we figured out that we could produce that. So everyone was in the office was very proud that we did that. People are seeing we are not just standing at the, at the sidelines, and we try to help. And and I think that was that was very positive also for the staff to continue to work. Right, I work in a company that does something more than just shipping bikes and trying to make money. And later on, when we had produced enough of the ventilator tubes, we started making uh, facial masks or protective gear for uh for people in uh, the reception of a hospital for example they were not getting any protection and then last monday we could open again so we actually have been very busy in those two months yeah and last monday we uh, we celebrated the opening uh, with a uh, special explorer edition you might have looked at the website but that is uh arlecchino is the uh, is a harlequin and he's uh with a very colorful jacket and he was actually wearing a mask but he has a very colorful character, ups and downs, and he has a, we made an, a, a bike with his colors. This was yeah. to celebrate positive reopening of the company. Yeah, brilliant. I, I applaud you for the way that you were able to transition and, and help and support. And, you know, as you say, the first goal is keep the company alive, keep people in jobs where you can. And, uh, and then once that's kind of secured and, and, uh, underway you can then look at how can you adapt and change and support the community that you live in i have seen the bike i'm very I, I i would love to win it myself and if anyone wants to read a little bit about the story of what you guys took on during this time uh on your website is a great story you can log your email address in there and 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 win this harlequin bike which also includes i think the first cranks that you read that you built after you reopened and recalibrated to be able to create the cranks as well there's a monetary value to the bike, but this is a very important emotional connection to that bike for everyone in the office. So this is a real yeah. big thing we give away. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I've loved kind of learning a little bit more about the company and how you know you got got things going again and reinvented and, and repurposed yourself along the way and the challenges and the roller coaster of emotions. And as always, I, I like to finish with three questions. 
I'd love to get your perspective because a lot of the guests have been US based. We did have one, uh, Till Shank, who's a friend of mine. He was in Girona, Spain. So he went through a, a quarantine and lockdown period similar to what you guys did. But uh, I'm interested to hear your answers to these questions. So I'll start with the first one. What's one thing that's changed for you during this quarantine lockdown period uh, that you want to make sure you keep once we reopen and we go back to the new normal? Well, I think two things, one private and one uh, requires privately is uh, I used to travel a lot and be a lot away from home. And in this period, I've been every, every evening home for dinner. We had dinner with the children and that is actually fantastic experience. Simple things are what makes me happy. I've also realized one week we can bike again. And I enjoyed so much that I, I knew it already, but I enjoyed so much that it has more value now for me than before. And work-wise, uh, I have seen that we have a very committed team that when, when the team and the company needed them, they were there in difficult situations, work from home with all the family sitting at the same table. So I'm very proud with the team we have on board. Second question. Uh, what's one thing you thought was important before lockdown and quarantine that you're happy to leave in the past? Traveling. <laughs> I did not miss the airport. The yeah. sky is so clean here. The blue, the blue sky is bluer than ever. The yeah. smell of air is much better. So now I know what it means to live in a clean environment. And that's really worthwhile. A follow-up question to that in regards to the not traveling. I'm sure that now you're kind of getting in a bit of a rhythm where your people are working apart, you're working away from, you know, from the office and from the factory. Do you think that's something you'll keep where maybe it won't be as much in-person meeting, maybe you can continue to connect, you know, over technology. Is that something you'll look to continue to implement? Definitely. I think, I think when you used to fly in Europe for an hour meeting to Paris back and forth in one day, I think very soon people say, are you crazy? It's yeah. a waste of your time and it's a polluting crazy. So there will be flying. It's necessary to connect with your team. But I think there's a lot of things you can do yeah. over over Zoom, Skype or whatever till you're using. Yeah, positive change too. I like your idea and the pollution and the blue sky and being out of like, it's just these meaningful things that you, do, you didn't, we didn't think about these things before. It wasn't yeah. something we cared about. And now a lot of, you know, the, the answers I've received have been, there's quite a few people talking about that, how they can see the mountains near where they live now, or they can see the blue sky or the water or what have you. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really meaningful. Final question, uh, what's been the most memorable moment? What's the most joyous moment you've had during quarantine, during lockdown? Playing games with my children in the evening after dinner. Monopoly, Risk, I have played the last two months a lot of games and it's only 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. But those times where you connect with your children are, are incredible. And I didn't use, I wasn't used to do that, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we did that because we want to give a positive mood to the children, and uh, but actually made myself also very happy. Who's the uh, who's the Monopoly champion in the family? It's my daughter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's the she's the businesswoman of the future, then, right? Yeah, well, happy to lose if she's happy. <laughs> oh, I love it, um, Ray. This has been great. I really appreciate your time. I know it's late there. Um, I've always loved our conversations. I've always loved our meetings. I'm I'm looking forward to a glass of wine and, uh, and some nice dinner together and a, and a ride sometime in the future. Sounds very good. All the best. Thanks, Renee. We'll chat soon. Thank you. Thanks again to Renee for joining me. It was great to learn more about his story. 
I hope you're enjoying the I'm Curious to Know project. These conversations are intriguing and invigorating for me, and I appreciate the opportunity to meet and converse with such an array of personalities from the endurance sports world. Stay tuned every day in May for more. Thanks for being here. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.